Hello everyone. For today's podcast on acute pelvic pain, I want to go over our goals and objectives. Number one, to understand key historical information needed from any patient with gynecologic organs presenting with acute pelvic pain. Number two, to be able to generate a differential diagnosis for acute pelvic pain, including so-called can't-miss diagnoses, the most dangerous diagnoses that you don't want to miss. Number three, to be familiar with components of the physical examination that are potentially helpful in narrowing the differential diagnosis for acute pelvic pain. And finally, number four, to understand lab and imaging options for further testing of patients with acute pelvic pain. I hope you enjoy this podcast and learn a lot. Today I'm here with Dr. Melody Howe, one of our OBGYN and clerkship directors at UC Davis School of Medicine, and we're going to be exploring UCD 43 symptom number 32, pelvic pain. Melody, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us where you grew up, went to college, medical school, trained in residency, and then briefly what your roles are here at UC Davis School of Medicine in the Department of OBGYN? That's a long list. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Um, I'm Melody Howe. I, as I was just mentioned, I'm in the OBGYN department, and I am a complex family planning specialist. I actually was born and raised in Stockton, which is like just down south from here, and so it's been nice to be able to come back. Um, I left the area to go to Northwestern for undergrad, then went to Boston to stay at Harvard for medical school, and then for a brief time period, I was at UCLA for my internship, and then went back to Harvard to finish the residency at Bethesville Deaconess for a boy who I eventually married. Um, I stayed in Boston for fellowship and complex family planning at Brigham Women's Hospital, and then stayed on staff for three years at Boston Medical Center before I came back home, essentially, here at UC Davis. Um, I have a lot of hats at this point, accumulated sort of um, involuntarily, I guess you could say here. So along with being the clerkship director, at which I share that role, I'm also the pre-clerkship director for the energy course, which a number of you are all probably in right now, which is the uh, endocrinology, reproduction, and GI portion of the pre-clerkship course. I also advise a fourth-year students, and then I have a number of roles in the actual school of medicine, one of the which I am doing, which is the CP chair. Wow. It sounds like you don't sleep very often. I probably could use more. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, what are your favorite things to do outside of your, your job? Um, so I hang out a lot with my husband and my son, who's six years old, and that has been extraordinarily fun. I think each year has been more fun, I think. Um, and so we're working through reading right now and learning to play the piano together, which has been great. Oh, wow. And any favorite hobbies other than the piano? We read a lot, um, and then this is not so much a, a hobby, although it's getting there, is replacing all the plants in our yard because this summer has been really hard on them this year. Uh, so you're putting in drought-tolerant drought plants? Drought-tolerant plants, exactly. Oh, uh, excellent. You know, we tore up our lawn this summer, basically, and put in stones. Sad, but, yes. you know, I don't know, lawns don't make that much sense in California. Not now. All right. So... Melody, perhaps before we dive into the case I'm going to present you today, can I just ask you a few general questions about pelvic pain? And the first one is, what distinguishes acute from chronic pelvic pain? Um, It's usually the duration. And so the classic duration we talk about is at least six months of pain, and that's what we'll call chronic. Okay. Well, if it's okay with you, because the more I took a deep dive into these two topics, the more I realized there's no way we could cover both in one recording. <laughs> that yeah, chronic pain is its own 
different beast altogether. Yeah, so so what we're going to do today is a case of acute pelvic pain, if that's okay with you. All right. And I think that's probably going to be most useful for our burgeoning medical students as they go forward in their, in their careers right now. So um, what are the first things that you're thinking as you're walking into the room, whether it's in the ED or in your office or wherever, when you're about to see a patient who you believe is gonna is presenting with a, a chief complaint of pelvic pain. So when I do see that chief complaint of, of uh, acute pelvic pain, I am starting. I'm thinking of the demographics first off because depending on where that person is in their reproductive lifespan is going to change my differential. And so for our younger patients, I'm thinking things that would be related to ovulation. But if it's someone who's postmenopausal, I start thinking more serious complications like cancers and things like that. And so I start off with the demographics aspect just because the representation of disease is just going to be different between the two. At that point, then, it depends on the setting, as you described. Like an outpatient setting, someone coming with pain is going to look different than someone's coming in through the emergency room. And I expect that when I go in, what the patient looks like is probably going to match the setting that I'm in in terms of the acuity and the severity of the pain that they're complaining of. Mm -hmm. And then as you're walking in, because I I think as physicians we're constantly thinking about what this could be, what am I about to see and diagnose, uh, do you have like a rough sort of differential diagnosis? Um, and, And maybe for the sake of not ranging too far, I will tell you that our patient in this case is 30 years old. So if they're 30, there's a few things that I'm thinking. One, the first question I'm going to ask beyond just sick or not sick is pregnant or not pregnant because it sends me off on a different differential. Um, Some things will become less likely and other things will become much more concerning, such as an ectopic pregnancy if she is pregnant. And so I start thinking about the pregnant, not pregnant part. And then if not pregnant, I start thinking, okay, in relation to the menstrual cycle, is what, where is this pain? When is this pain happening? The important thing also is to not exclude other organs that can also cause pelvic pain. Um, I find a lot of the times, especially working with learners, people forget there's also the bladder that's in the area. There's also bowel that's in the air, and all of which can also cause pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. So making sure that we're not making the differential too narrow on just gyne is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I learned as I was reading and preparing for this session was that they don't even really know what the actual incidence is of patients presenting, say, to the emergency room with pelvic pain, because often they're logged in as abdominal pain, later discovered to be pelvic pain. Correct. Yeah. So it's, it's. I guess you're going to probably keep a broad differential. So what are some of the things you're thinking about as causes of acute pelvic pain? So assuming that the patient's not pregnant, I'm thinking of things like ovarian cysts, which in turn can cause ovarian torsion. I start thinking of things like pelvic inflammatory disease that can also cause more localized pain if, say, a tubal ovarian abscess has formed. Sometimes there's people who actually feel ovulation pain, and that's called Mittelschmerz, which is a German word that's for middle pain. It's very cute when you think about it. That tends not to be so acute, say, if you're in the emergency room, but again, considering your setting and severity, that might play a role as well. I start thinking of the chronicity, as we've just mentioned before. You can have a chronic pain issue, pelvic pain issue, but then can have acute issues on top of it. For example, someone with endometriosis will have chronic pelvic pain, but if they form an endometrioma, which is where the endometrial implant is on the ovary, then that itself can cause pain. So in the context of a chronic pain issue. So those are some of the things I start thinking about when going in. So middle schmerz pain in German? Correct. Oh, I so I'm not <laughs> sure if it's middle schmerz as in middle pain 
belly pain or middle as in middle of the cycle because it's ovulation but yes it is oh, middle pain oh, i always thought it was someone's name no <laughs> like it actually is a literal translation german gynecologist or something <laughs> good to know you learn something every every day around here okay good so why don't we jump into the case if it's okay with you so this is a 30 year old woman and if you need to, to jump in at any point feel free but uh, i'll just get the, uh, the case started a 30 year old woman who's pregnant for the first time so i guess that's g1p0 that's pretty good that you remember that (laughs) as as an i'm an internist remember uh she's currently 10 weeks gestational age according to her last menstrual period um, and she presents with right lower abdominal pain the pain came on gradually about three days ago before this visit it's constant it's dull it's not made worse by movement exercise or eating Her appetite is okay, but the pain is sort of distracting, she says. She hasn't had fevers, nausea, vomiting, and her bowel movements have been normal. She denies vaginal discharge, but does say that she thought she had a small amount of spotting of blood four days ago, the day before the pain began. So this is a planned pregnancy, and she feels anxious about what's going on right now. And uh, her past medical history is really nothing uh, remarkable in it. Um, her past GYN history, which I'm sure as a GYN OB doctor interested in, she, she has regular cycles. Uh, she does have heavy menses, um, usually lasts about six to eight days. Uh, and she was screened for sexually transmitted diseases uh, at her uh, last visit to her gynecologist, OBGYN. Um, And her past surgical history, she did have a laparoscopic appendectomy uh, at age 12. Uh, Her medications only are perinatal vitamins, and she has no known drug allergies. So I guess I'd first be interested to know if anything, you know, do that old pattern recognition thing. Does this fit an illness script immediately for you, and you're like, aha, I know what the diagnosis is, or are you going to need to kind of work your way through this one and if so, you know, with the UCD43, we've been encouraging discussants to sort of focus on the common things or common approach and then kind of looking for patterns. Mm-hmm. Well, as I discussed earlier, the pregnant, not pregnant question becomes really important because you'll change the order of your differential based on that. The fact that she's pregnant does make things a little less likely and a little more likely. So, for example, since she is pregnant, especially with what's called first trimester bleeding, which is any kind of bleeding at the beginning of the pregnancy, we always have the three, which is the GYN's three, I guess you can say, which is your ectopic pregnancy, a normal pregnancy, or early signs of miscarriage. And so those three would be at the top of my list. That being said, I would have also included appendicitis, but luckily she has already had a laparoscopic appendectomy, so I don't have to worry about that at all here. I still would have to worry about other things um, that wouldn't necessarily be related to pregnancy. And so that would be an ovarian cyst. She's in her first trimester, and usually at that point, a person would still have a corpus luteal cyst, which, if large enough, can cause ovarian torsion in itself. PID becomes less likely just because of the cervical mucus is thick enough that it keeps microbes out. So we don't see PID all that often when someone's already mm-hmm. pregnant. Um, other things that is related to pregnancy beyond the three that I mentioned, though, is that as the uterus is growing larger, you can have something called round ligament pain, which is because of the round ligament that attaches to the vulva, you actually will get these pulling sharp 
shooting sensations as the pregnancy gets bigger. And some people will notice that in the first and second trimesters, especially with motion, they notice this pulling and tugging and this sharp pain that goes right down into the vagina that they feel, they'll, they'll report. And that's the round ligament pain. And how common is round ligament pain? I don't think I've heard of that before. It is surprisingly common. Uh -huh. Usually it's just a split second and then it goes away. So it's not even of a duration where you can take ibuprofen, for example. So we'll get that in prenatal clinics when we get that visit and they're like, what's going on because of this pain? It's rare that they would actually come to the emergency room just because it's such a brief period of time when it happens. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, before you examine the patient, um, and I'll give you the physical exam in a moment, um, are there other important review of systems questions that haven't uh, popped up in the history so far? I think it depends on what else is on your differential. So if she had given any signs of, say, dysuria or other signs that we were pretty worried about a urinary tract infection, that incidence is also higher in pregnancy, just the effect of progesterone on the urinary tract system and slowing the peristalsis. I would have asked, I would ask for those specific questions. Um, say if she had already reported dysuria or other frequency, for example, I might follow that up a bit more in terms of that. And in a way, you can think of it anatomically, right? What's in that area? I've talked about bowel earlier. I talked about bladder as well as the uterus and adnexa. And so all those things need to be a part of your differential. I think you've hit the most of the questions I would have asked as my review assistants, however. Oh, excellent. So I would have done okay on the OBGYN clerkship, so. maybe. I think so. <laughs> okay. Um, good to know. Yeah, so it sounds like in pregnancy, PID, much lower incidence, but urinary tract infections, higher. Yes. So we're kind of, okay, in terms of kind of probability testing here, I guess. Okay. So what's your problem representation at this juncture before I give you the physical exam? Yeah, so we have a young woman who is in the first trimester of pregnancy reporting pelvic pain and vaginal bleeding. And so I think at that point, we start thinking of, and the way I usually separate my differentials is, okay, what could be pregnancy-related? What's OBGYN-related, and then what's other, right? And so the things that I haven't listed or excluded from the GYN part and, um, and pregnancy part, I still need to keep in mind unless I've, ex I've definitely excluded that. And so after arranging it in those three lists, then I would go on from there. Again, I would say given her symptoms that present, I think the first things I want to check on is the pregnancy issues, mainly because ectopic pregnancy can will be lethal if we don't treat that. And so that will be my, one of my most can't-miss differentials on that list. Mm -hmm. On the exam, I would need to figure out exactly where this pain is. Things shift around as the pregnancy starts growing and the uterus starts growing larger. And so getting an idea of how far along she is both by exam and later on, I will get an imaging just to double check on this pregnancy. That will give me a sense of, okay, where would her appendix actually be at her gestational age since mm -hmm. that will shift as well. So I guess at this point, I would start thinking about, okay, is she sick or not sick? And part of that would be the vital signs and go from there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're saying you want the vital signs? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Could we just skip to a CT scan? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because, I mean, beyond just the radiation to the fetus, CT scans are really not that helpful for OBGYN. We actually go for ultrasound. The oh, CT scan doesn't right. differentiate very well between different pelvic organs, and so you'll actually find it really rare that an OBGYN will order a CT scan right off the bat. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah and I guess there's definitely that risk of the radiation, as you, as you mentioned. So the physical exam, uh, her temperature was 37.1 degrees centigrade, blood pressure 112 over 66, heart rate 74, 
respiratory rate 14. You want the rest of the exam too? So things that are reassuring, she's Sorry. not febrile. And that's another thing to worry about is the risk of septic abortion, which isn't commonly seen these days, but unfortunately may become more common around the country with certain regulations and rules are happening. But the fact that she's not not appearing as if she's febrile, her blood pressure is normal, which also would be another concern if, depending on how much she's bleeding, either internally because of an ectopic pregnancy or externally, which her spotting is not very much. So that's all reassuring. Uh, so in general, she's in no distress, although she looks uh, fairly uncomfortable uh, as she came in the exam room and climbed up on the exam table. Balsons are present. Uh, her abdomen is soft. It's not distended or tympanitic. But she has marked tenderness over the right lower quadrant and mild rebound tenderness in that area only. The pelvic exam uh, shows normal external genitalia, uh, cervix is normal, and a bimanual exam reveals a uterus that is about 14 weeks in size and irregular. Uh, on the right, it is tender to palp, on her right, it is tender to palpation. The adnexa are non-tender and there's no masses. So what do you think? Okay, so just with the physical exam, we've already narrowed down the differential a lot. So the things that I noticed is that her uterus is enlarged and irregularly shaped, which lends itself more to her having leiomyoma, which colloquially is known as fibroids. They're benign masses, so in itself is usually not an acute situation, but it's interesting to note, especially since she's telling you that she's 10 weeks, but her uterus is showing something different. And you can get an enlarged uterus if you have enough fibroids in there, which it sounds like she probably does. What's reassuring is that her adnexa are normal, and that does help exclude the um, possibility of an ectopic pregnancy, of an ovarian cyst that might have ruptured and caused pain, or an ovarian torsion, all of which would have been still in my differential until this exam. Now it's much lower for all three of those things. Mm -hmm. The other things I would look at is also, is there any bladder tenderness um, on exam? I don't know if, you, if I missed that, but if there wasn't, that would also drop the risk of this being cystitis causing it, also much lower. Other things that I would say would be reassuring is that there wasn't any other findings that I would suspect would cause, um, would be of concern. For example, if she has CVA tenderness, or thinking of stone, that would have been also another possibility in terms of pelvic pain, because sometimes the stone can get caught in the urethra. So kidney stone. Exactly, uh, kidney uh. stone. And so those would be things that I would also have looked for, and it sounded like everything was normal. So that's good. Right, so that's pretty much the exam. And I... I mean, you know, I love the physical exam, so I'm, I'm glad you were smiling when you heard the exam because it, it, it did seem to point you in some directions. And so I'm going to give you the basic labs that were obtained. Uh, her white blood count was 8.9. Her hemoglobin was 10.1. Uh, and if you're a hematocrit person, 30.6. Her 30.6%. Uh, uh, UA was negative on DIP. Beta HCG was... 26,000, I think, international units per liter. Million international units per liter, yes. Okay, all right. I can't remember the last time I even saw one of those results in internal medicine. But So those are the, the basic labs they got. One, I guess, probably silly question I have for you is if someone comes in and they say that they're, you know, by dates, 10 weeks pregnant, you don't get a pregnancy test, do you? Well, it depends. Uh -huh. Um I have had, unfortunately, some people who have thought they were pregnant and were not. Mm. And I say unfortunate is because we've done ultrasounds and jumped right onto the assumption that she was pregnant and then it turns out she wasn't, which put us on a different path altogether. Uh -huh. 
trying to diagnose. So I'm not sure if a quant uh, a quant beta HCG is particularly helpful in this case, but just yes no with a urinary pregnancy test, which comes back in three minutes, would have been sufficient. Uh -huh. yeah. Wow! So it literally only takes three minutes. Yes. In in your office in the ED too? Does in it come back? Both FS? places. Wow. Yes. Okay. Amazing. I wish everything came back <laughs> that fast, but then we'd probably be ordering even more tests. So you mentioned the CT scan tends not to be very helpful in, in your specialty, um, and it, you tend to like ultrasounds. Do you want an ultrasound here, or you want a CT scan? Probably not, not a CT. No, definitely not a CT scan, especially in the context of a pregnancy that's desired. Ultrasound would be helpful for a couple of reasons. One, as we mentioned, where you avoid radiation. Two, we have a discrepancy between size and dates. What I mean by that is the uterine size is much larger than where her uh, LMP would have put her dating, which is supposed to be 10 weeks. And now we have this uterus of 14 centimeters. Now, I said the regularity of the contour lends itself to be lyomyoma, but we should make sure. And it's not been uncommon that people are inaccurate with the dating of their last menstrual period. Um, it, it's been easier these recent days because a lot of people have apps that help you track, and so we've gotten a lot more accurate with that now, but mm -hmm. most of the time people don't necessarily remember their very first day of bleeding of their last menstrual period. So an ultrasound here would be really helpful. Mm -hmm. And maybe a silly question as well, but transvaginal or, or just a pelvic ultrasound? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Usually we do start with a transabdominal ultrasound. It is less invasive. If we are suspecting that, say, the pregnancy is much earlier and we're really needing to get an idea of what the adnexa look like, then we might push a little bit more for transvaginal. Knowing that it is more invasive and there's going to be people who are uncomfortable with doing so and making sure that patients know that they can say no is totally fine. Mm -hmm. um, so ensuring that they have some control over it is important, especially when they're already in pain. It's not really that great to um, do something like that if they're not wanting to. So we'll start off with a transadomal ultrasound. If we're still having trouble distinguishing structures, then we will ask if we can do a transvaginal ultrasound. Got it. So the advantage of the transvaginal ultrasound in general is better look at the adnexa. Right. It's a higher frequency probe, but that means you also have to get closer to those organs. That's why it ends up being transvaginal. If she is 10 weeks, though, we should be able to see things adequately with a transabdominal ultrasound. Got it. Okay. Well, that is um, what she had. It showed an intrauterine pregnancy of eight weeks, okay. actually. In a, in a few days, uh, with normal fetal cardiac motion. Uh, the uterus was diffusely, bingo for you, myomatous, um, if that's the right word to use, <laughs> with a six centimeter right fundal fibroid. Oh, good size. Um, wow, so what do you make of this? Well, one, as we talked about, not everyone's particular, like specifically accurate with their last menstrual periods. So it sounds like she was off by a couple of weeks, which is not an uncommon thing. And then this good size fibroid, does explain one why her uterus is so big, also explains the irregularity of the contour, and also could be the cause of her pain. I say that because I think usually fibroids generally are asymptomatic. There's a lot of people out there with fibroids and we'll never know it until the end of life when their autopsy happens, to be honest. <laughs> the ones that do manifest usually manifest because their periods become problematic. So either it's going to be painful periods or heavy periods. It's rare, but can happen to be diagnosed at the time of pregnancy, because that may be the first time that they are interacting with the healthcare system, specifically about gynecological problems. There's a lot of shame involved with gynecology, unfortunately, for our patients, and oftentimes they don't talk about these problems with their primary care doctors unless a problem comes up. And so it's very conceivable that she has had regular medical care and never have talked about her periods until this point. 
I've had a few cases, well, this is sort of a <laughs> digression, but I've had a few patients over the years who came in and had um, incredibly low hemoglobins from bleeding fibroids, um, you know, and uh, anyway, so it's sort of striking. Is that a common presentation? Will they come in with iron deficiency anemia and heavy periods due to the fibroids? They can because sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm having a lot of bleeding with my periods. And the response either from family or friends or even doctors is, well, it's a period. That's how it is, which unfortunately leads to a lot of delayed diagnoses that end up being coming in for the emergency room for iron deficiency anemia or people with endometriosis. Their delay of diagnosis can be 10, 15 years because people say, Periods have to be painful. Periods have to have blood. It's normal. Um, and then we get into these situations. Probably should have a lower threshold for referring to yes. gynecology. And ask specifically if they're having problems, because sometimes otherwise they feel as if they can't say anything about it. Okay. So what's the relationship then, do you think, with this large fibroid that she has in her pregnancy and her... Because the fibroid was where the pain was. Yeah, um, I'm not surprised. Um Likelihood, and you can ask the patient about that, is when is to ask when they when the radiology or the technician rolled the ultrasound probe over that point, did it hurt? And I wouldn't be surprised if she confirmed that part of it. Fibroids are interesting. So the benign tumors, they're made from the myometrial tissue of the uterus. And what's interesting is that they are hormone sensitive. So they tend to grow, especially with the presence of estrogen, and tend to shrink when you lose estrogen, which is why you don't really diagnose these in pre-pural girls, and you don't have a problem with these when someone hits menopause. Um, but in between time, it will ebb and flow, I guess you can say, um, throughout the, the reproductive lifespan, depending on how much estrogen there is. And so in pregnancy, the pregnancy is generating a lot of estrogen at this point, and oftentimes, the fibroids can grow because of that. Now, whether or not it's actually going to cause problems is sort of hit and miss. You won't know until it actually starts causing problems. And in this particular case, what likely has happened is that in response of the pregnancies producing estrogen, the fibroid probably got enlarged and unfortunately grew outgrew its blood supply. And so when that happens, you can then get necrosis of the tissue, and that in itself can cause pain because now you start this inflammatory cycle of, um, of inflammatory factors that will just get released. Um, and then you get a lot of this tenderness and pain as this uh, tumor necrosis. So what is the final diagnosis? What, what do you, is there a term for that? Is it degenerating? Yes, a degenerating fibroid um, that's related to the effect of pregnancy. Okay. So we could call it like degenerating uterine fibroid pregnancy related or yes, something like I think that. that would okay. Be and how do you manage this sounds like a hard thing to manage if like it's not like you can make the estrogen go away in a desired pregnancy, right? That is correct. And I wish I had the magic wand to just cut it off from the fibroid. Um, in this particular case it's really just pain management, unfortunately. Um, the best we can do is usually NSAIDs in terms of what types of pain medications that we can offer. The problem with NSAIDs, especially when you get into the third trimester, is that now we're exposing the fetus um, mm -hmm. to a substance that could close off prematurely the ductus arteriosus, which we don't want to have happen. So at least up until the third trimester, we can use NSAIDs, but at that point, we have to start thinking about transitioning. Can we get away with other pain management? And that might include narcotics at that point. Mm -hmm. We generally don't try to do surgical management unless, one, it's the fibroid is in this area where it's easy to 
take off without interfering with the uterus itself, and that's called a pedunculated fibroid, where it's just sort of hanging out off the, uh, the edge of the uterine serosa. But most of the time, we can't interfere until time of delivery. And depending on the delivery, we can actually take it out at time of cesarean delivery. Or we have to wait until later on, and we figure out and map out the fibroid, its symptoms, and then go from there. And then once the, um, the baby's delivered, because the estrogen level, I assume, would go down at that point, do the, do the symptoms tend to improve, or is it, do you need to do surgery at that point? Symptoms tend to improve, but sometimes not. This one will likely resolve after the delivery of the pregnancy. The fiber will likely shrink a bit, probably become calcified, and may not actually cause a problem after the delivery. Hmm. How, how common are uterine fibroids, like on a population basis, percent of women that have them? A lot of people have them. I should know the numbers, and I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. um, but I do know that the vast majority of them are asymptomatic and just incidentally found. Okay. Well, I always tell the students if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, they have to look it up. So that I, sounds I, good. I will look that up and get back <laughs> to you about the exact number. Okay. So, so that's our case, Melody. And I think you covered a lot of ground about acute pelvic pain. And um, I was just wondering, do you have any other take-home points for our listeners about acute pelvic pain? I think when you approach acute pelvic pain, the things I, I caution my learners about is one, making, making sure your differential is still sufficiently broad. Um, I notice that when students show up on OB-GYN, everything now has an OB-GYN lens, and they've forgotten all the things that they learned on internal medicine and surgery that they've taken before. So reminding them to keep that differential broad is important. The second thing that I would then say is just making sure that once you have an idea of where the pain is located, which is going to influence your differential, that you're really thoughtful about, okay, what is my pelvic exam going to yield so that you know what to order next? Because I think there is a habit, and some of it is out of extendency, of ordering a slew of labs that may not necessarily be helpful to you. And you could have saved that time and money if you had just at least gone through the history and physical exam more thoroughly first. Mm-hmm. Sounds like one of my main teaching points on internal medicine. Absolutely. <laughs> Get a good history, do a good exam, and it will save a lot of money in terms of unnecessary tests. True that. Well, thanks for joining me today, Melody. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this.